In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. And welcome to episode 20 of Paw and Order. Today's episode is brought to you by not quite, right, Camille? Not quite, but we think we're going to be able not to announce quite. a sponsor sometime potentially pretty soon. Our very first one. We are very excited. I was so excited. I wanted to be screaming out, brought to you by our friends at, well, unfortunately, that's going to have to wait one more episode. I blame Shannon. How dare she take a vacation last week, Camille? You got to run a tighter ship over there at the head office. Oh, inexcusable, huh? That people would take time off, Peter. I know you never do. <laughs> Absolutely inexcusable, Camille. In any event, welcome to Paw and Order, sponsored by Animal Justice, our wonderful organization that brings you this podcast every week. How are you doing, Camille? I'm no longer in your presence. I know. I know. It's so sad. I can't believe it was only two weeks ago we were in person recording and then uh, had some fun times as well at the Animal Law Conference in Chicago. Yes, we ate very well at the Animal Law Conference in Chicago. That seemed to have been the running theme of the weekend. How much food can we eat in Chicago? That was the question. I know. I have to say, as much as I enjoy the conference, I always enjoy at least as much, maybe even more, just eating the different things in whatever city the conference is in. It was a combination of both things on this occasion. It was uh, it was especially uh, pleasurable to catch up with some old colleagues and uh, make some new friends as well. We met up with a lot of animal justice people. We met up with a lot of ALDF people. We just met up with a lot of people who care passionately about uh, making the world a better place for animals, Camille. Yeah, so many great people. And shout out to all the amazing students from Canada who made it down for uh, the conference. There were tons of students from Osgood, uh, McGill... Uh, University of British Columbia, I'm probably missing some because there were lots of students there, but it, for me, it bodes really well for the future of this movement. Quite a, quite a few pawn order listeners, I believe, Camille. I got, I got a few people coming up to me saying pawn order. So I was, I was very excited. I know. And we also saw the original animal law podcaster, Marianne Sullivan, who runs the aptly named U.S. animal law podcast. So that was kind of cool too. Yeah, that was cool. Um, Look, it was a really great conference. Uh, there was some really interesting stuff. I got to say, for me, the uh, highlight was, uh, it's its weird, the highlight was right at the beginning, but I thought uh, uh, Seth, it's Seth Tibbet, is that correct? Did I get his name right? You did, yeah. He's the founder and CEO of Tofurky. Yeah, and he gave uh, really just a fantastic presentation that really talked about the past and the future of, uh, of animal laws in, in, in this country. A very optimistic presentation about what might happen as we continue to gain steam uh, in, in pushing for for better animal laws for animals and, and really changing the way people think about animals as food. Yeah, it was actually hilarious. I enjoyed a lot of the history lesson about the early days of vegetarianism, some of the first people who were eating a veg diet. And then he sort of did this funny thing where he projected into the future saying like, here's a news article from 2095 when the last restaurant still serving animal meat closed. <laughs> so maybe we can expect yeah, to was... see that someday. 
It was it was a very innovative presentation. I thought it was very well done, really captivating, and uh, got a standing ovation from the audience. Really, just tremendous. So, so I really enjoyed it, and it was packed to hundreds of people. It must have been about four hundred attendees, and it was really great. We got to catch up with some former uh, guest hosts of this podcast. Were in person there too, weren't they, Camille? Uh, we did. We did. We had both Sophie Gaillard and also Samantha Compa who were on hand for the conference and both who've joined us in the past. Yeah, it was great to uh, catch up with everybody. Honestly, it was a great time. We managed to uh, record at least one interview at that uh, conference that's going to come up on a future episode. So uh, stay tuned for that. Yeah, watch for it. So, Peter. So, what else have you been up to, Camille? I know. Oh, sorry. You you go first. Uh, I I I know it wasn't just all uh, animal law conference. You've had another uh, busy run uh, getting across North America. Where were you last? Oh well, last weekend I was in Montreal for the Montreal Festival Vegan, which was absolutely packed. I've been there in past years, and uh, it's no exaggeration to say that this year was definitely at least double. There were way more vendors. Uh, the rooms for all the speakers were packed. I spoke about animal law and, and how people can get involved in political advocacy as well, which was super well received, I think. So that was fun. But uh, I know that you... It's it's too bad. It's too bad. It's too bad that no one from Animal Justice comes from Montreal originally and, you know, could have been invited to speak in their home province on, a, on such a topic. Hey, eh, Camille, it's just too oh, bad. Oh, Peter, are you from Montreal? <laughs> I've never, I've never, I've never been invited to speak in Montreal. I'm very disappointed. I don't know what it is. Apparently, I, I left the city 25 odd years ago, and they've, I, I don't think they've ever forgiven me. No. Oh, I don't think anyone knows that you're from Montreal. First of all, <laughs> <laughs> and that's not true. Come on, I speak, I, I spoke French on the gala episode uh, terribly, as uh, my friend Sophie Gard delights in pointing out. Oh. Well, I'm glad that the Montreal SPCA people have the animal law stuff in Quebec somewhat covered because you and I and our French, it's not going to get us very far. No, it's it's probably not. No. But so, Peter, last episode, you were filling us in. And the reason that you were in Ottawa and we could record in person is because you were doing a Supreme Court case. So do you want to fill us in on how that went? Uh, sure. It was uh, it was really really cool. Uh, that's the best I can say about it. Um, it was uh, it's an incredible honor and an experience to speak before the Supreme Court. And this was the third time I'd been there, but it was the first time that I was representing a litigate litigant in like the prime position where you actually get real time <laughs> to argue. And uh, it was fantastic. Uh, it was a great experience for me. I I think I really learned a lot from it, and I hope I performed well. I, I think I did. And I was it was really just a great experience to interact with the judges. I think it'll stand me in good stead for any future animal law cases I'm tasked with doing and uh, also just a great experience on its own. So I don't know how well we did on the case. It was a tough case to begin with. And I think the court uh, uh, took our position and had a lot of frank questions for us. But uh, it was just an incredible day to be surrounded by so many lawyers. I mean, there were 15 interveners. So the, the courtroom was absolutely packed and the foyer was packed with, uh, you know, uh, people who were concerned about the case. So it was just a tremendous experience all around. I'm really glad I had the opportunity to do it. Well, congratulations on that. And as for your performance, I have to say, I saw tons of tweets, Peter, from journalists, from other lawyers in the courtroom, just applauding you and saying that you were an excellent advocate. So I think you can be proud of that. And I look forward to you using those skills for animals next time we go to the Supreme Court. Yeah, hoping hoping that'll be sooner rather than uh, later. And uh, I I I 
on, on that score, I can also say I've got uh, yet another animal law client uh, that I've, I've picked up recently, not going to the Supreme Court, still down in lowly provincial court, but uh, two activists were charged with uh, putting up a banner on a highway or actually removing a banner um, on a highway, and they were charged under Alberta's Traffic Safety Act, so I've agreed to represent them, and we're hoping to get those charges dismissed so they can keep on doing what they do best. Well, that's pretty cool, and uh, I'm excited to hear that because obviously it's important to defend activists like that. Uh, and listeners, if you want an overview of some of the ways that the police and state power use the laws to come down on activists, check out, I think, two episodes when I spoke with Taylor Zavitz about her research in this area. It's super interesting stuff and really important for animal justice and other animal lawyers to defend the rights of those advocates. Absolutely. In fact, this is what I think was going on in that case. This was, uh, I'm not convinced the charges have a huge likelihood of success. And I think this was simply a way of putting some pressure on people and trying to get them to stop what they're doing. And I should point out, because I just forgot to say so, that um, Animal Justice um, has agreed to to cover the costs for these activists who, who don't really have a lot of money. And uh, they've agreed to cover the costs that are that are associated with some of the work we have to do, filings and such. So it's really a great of animal justice to do that. It's a good thing I, I, I'm i I'm on good terms with some of the people running the place. That sure helps, doesn't it? <laughs> but in all seriousness, it is, <laughs> it is really important work, and I'm glad you're able to defend the case and that we're able to, to play some role in it. Absolutely. Now, I know that animal justice has also been very busy. It never stops. In fact, I is it fair? I think we're going into our busy season. But uh, I know I I know that on the uh, last episode, or or not on the last episode, but uh, right after the last episode, uh, Camille undertook to do something that really she's not very good at doing. Camille, I, I, I know you're almost good. You're good at almost everything, you know, award winner and all. But but this is something you're really terrible at, which is, you know, staying quiet, Camille. How'd you manage? Yeah, so I did the Voiceless for Animal Justice fundraising campaign that we were promoting. And thank you so much to everyone who participated in that, who donated. We talked about it a bit on previous podcasts. And it was, a, it was actually a huge success. So we raised over $28,000 to support our work, which is just incredible. And uh, I personally succeeded my, uh, exceeded my fundraising target as well. And uh, I did manage to stay silent for an entire 24-hour period on um, Wednesday, October 10th. Although I'm going to come clean with listeners and be honest about something. <laughs> I broke my silence at one point. <laughs> So I was really good all day. Did you like, did you stub your toe or what? What happened exactly? No, no. And I think listeners are going to understand why I did it once I tell the story. But I was really good all day. I was, it was kind of challenging, but I was getting lots of work done. I was being really productive because I couldn't talk. So I walk home, I get home from work, and on my street, I see these two guys with clipboards. And I can tell right away that they're canvassing probably in Ontario's municipal election. So probably running for city council and want to come get my support. So I see them, and I'm about to go into my house, and then they come up to me, and they're like, oh, hi. One guy says, hi, I'm Mathieu Fleury. I'm the uh, Ottawa city councillor for your ward. And I was so excited to meet my own councillor. That I was like, oh, hi, great to meet you. Can I tell you about some of the animal issues facing Ottawa? 
So I for shame, Camille. I know, for shame. I know. So I completely forgot myself after the conversation was over, which was really great, by the way. He was very receptive to animal issues and promised to work on them. Uh, after the conversation was over, I was like, oh, no, but the damage had been done. So anyway, Peter, I feel like people will understand because at least the animals I, would understand. I, I want my donation back. I, I, I don't I, think I, I don't you know, made Camille. one. I think the only... <laughs> I don't think I did either. But if I had made one, Camille, I would want it back. And let me just say that I think the proper thing to do, the honorable thing to do, Camille, is do another day. Just do another day. Get it, get it, get it all squared up. Let your conscience decide, Camille. Oh, geez. I, I honestly, I don't even know when I would find another day because it's just too busy with media interviews and campaigns these days. But maybe next year it's very busy as you as as you'll see when we get to the topic of the day just one more point on this voice voice for voiceless for animal justice camille i would have been much more impressed and and i was pretty impressed anyway but i would have been much more impressed if if your voiceless campaign did not include electronic speaking because you were very busy chirping all over twitter that day so i think i think next time it's got to be voiceless and tweetless for animal justice oh no that would be the worst because then no one would know that i'm doing it it would defeat the entire purpose peter but maybe maybe you can try that oh, next time all right <laughs> yeah we'll see we'll see all right well i i well, anyway, I'm, I'm congratulations to everybody involved for Voices for Animal Justice. And uh, I, I think our producer, Shannon Milling, had a hand in getting that organized, didn't she? Yeah, it was all Shannon's brainchild, all her doing. She ran that campaign. She conceived of it. She executed it. So really hats off to Shannon for doing something pretty cool there. And, of course, to everyone who played a part and helped us out with it. Absolutely. All right, Peter, speaking of busy... I think it's time to announce some dates for our upcoming holiday parties. Is it holiday season already, Camille? It feels like Halloween is just coming. But then I look at the calendar and I'm like, oh, my God, we've only got a month or so to go. I know. I know. Time just has been flying like crazy lately. But we've got some exciting news. This we year. are very excited about holiday. Very excited. Holiday parties. You know, can you can you Camille, let's just take a couple minutes. I think it's worthwhile. Can you give a little background on on the animal just because this is our first time, right? We haven't. We've never done pawn order in advance of a holiday party. So can you give some of our listeners a, a breakdown of what, what the holiday parties are and how they started? Yeah, sure. So we've been doing the Toronto holiday party now since I think the first year was 2012 or 2013. We, we did it once and it was pretty small. There were maybe 30 people who showed up because we were pretty small back then. And uh, the next time we had it in 2014, it went up to about 60 people, and then it's just exploded. I mean, last year there were 250. It was it was just enormous. And because it was such a great event, really a good chance to connect with supporters, uh, talk about the work that we've done over the course of the year. We throw, show a, a year-end video that reviews all the media coverage and everything that we've all done together in the course of the last year. Uh, and because it's been so good in Toronto, Peter, we've done parties in Vancouver, too, the last two years. And those, of course, are amazing as well and just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the cool thing is that this year we've decided to do one in Edmonton for the very first time. Edmonton representing. 
We are representing in Edmonton. We're very excited. Yeah, yeah. It's our first ever public event in Edmonton. So any of you who are listening, mark the date November 29th in your calendar. And you can you can uh, watch for more information to be released very soon about details of that. But we're super excited to be there. Uh, the following night, November 30th in Vancouver, that's a Friday. That will be our uh, event date there. And then we're moving on to December 7th in Toronto. So stay tuned for all the details if you're on our mailing list you will get invites to these events and we would love to see you there it's always just such a fun chance to connect with people over some food some drinks and uh, share some conversations and get some inspiration very exciting and uh, we can also announce that uh, the very own very own very wonderful Camille Labchuk will be will be at all three parties I believe and uh, especially she will be kicking off our first ever party in Edmonton and we're very excited to have her here and uh, I can say that I am hopefully going to go out to Vancouver as well, but uh, that, that's still to be determined. But I'm hoping I will join Ms. Lapchuk in Vancouver to hopefully uh, say hello to some of our fans in Vancouver and uh, just, you know, share some of the love about animal justice. Well, I think it's going to be a pretty fun, uh, pretty fun holiday season. So if you, if you want to come, please stay tuned for details. We would just so love to see you there. And it brings up some special memories because I remember I did attend the Toronto party last year. And uh, if you recall, Camille, the Toronto party was where we announced the launching of Pawn Order, I believe. And I believe we also did a, we did an interview on, on Fur Bear's podcast, correct? That was uh, designed to highlight what we were up to. Oh, you're right. I almost forgot about that. But... Yes, it's one. It's one. We're almost at the one-year anniversary of the launching of the podcast, not the actual first podcast. That's in January. But we're almost at the one-year of the launch damn time flies yeah it does fly it does fly anyway very exciting we're excited about everything that's coming up i have no doubt this will uh, be discussed in more depth on, on a future edition of uh, paw and order definitely so peter let's move on to what's been in the news lots lots tons tons in the news yeah all right, so breaking news. Let's start, start with the big one. Start with the big one. So late, late last night, that was a Tuesday, October 23rd. We're recording this on Wednesday. Bill S203 to ban whale and dolphin captivity finally passed through the Senate. Woohoo! That is fantastic news. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. It was actually a surprise vote. We've been working on this legislation for years, and so uh, I wasn't even expecting this to come up. Uh, what's What's been going on for just ages at this point is obstruction by a handful of senators, a couple conservative senators, and of course, as many of you will have heard already from this podcast, conservative Senate whip Don Plett. So we thought last night maybe they would uh, move it forward in a, in a very minor way, but we didn't expect it to just go for a vote and pass. But that's exactly what happened. So it was a bit of a surprise for everyone, but uh, doesn't make it any, any the less exciting. Very exciting. Uh, I, I have not been uh, keeping up with the bill as closely as Camille has. Uh, I, I just sort of, at this point, expected it to stay in the Senate forever. But I've had a chance to look at it. It's a very exciting bill. There's actually lots of interesting language in there. Um, and we could talk about in some depth, aside from the idea that it actually obviously uh, provides a great deal more security to cetaceans, I would suggest there's some interesting language in there that could... Uh, 
be be quite useful in sort of setting new standards for animals generally. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, if it passes, it will be the first sort of major revision to our animal cruelty laws in a very long time, the first sort of substantive new thing that's in there. So it's a pretty big deal. But what it would do is it would ban cetacean captivity. So that's whales and dolphins and porpoises. So you can't keep any more of those animals in captivity. There are exemptions for uh, existing cetaceans who are already in captivity, which unfortunately is uh, probably the only way to get this bill passed is to exempt those ones. Um, It also outlaws the breeding of whales and dolphins, importing them, uh, exporting them, importing or exporting reproductive materials as as well. So it does a pretty comprehensive job of making sure that there won't be any future whales and dolphins in captivity. And of course, Peter, there's only two places that still can find these beautiful animals. It's just marine land in the Vancouver Aquarium. Yeah, that's true. And and I was particularly interested. I, I read through the text of the bill this morning and looked at the exceptions to the bill. It actually reminds me of another uh, 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 law that I'm quite familiar with uh, from New Zealand, where in New Zealand, they passed a very famous protection for great apes. And uh, in that protection, there was some very unique sort of revolutionary language. It was the first what I would call non-welfare-based language in the, in the sense that it, it was it was really a provision that was designed to do things only where it was in the interests of the great ape. In other words, you could only keep a great ape in captivity or do certain things upon them where it was in their interests. And, and what I found interesting is the language in this bill as well, which would amend uh, section 445.23, If you look at the exceptions, leaving aside the grandfather clause, which you just referred to, I was really interested that there was a very specific exception for keeping cetaceans in captivity where it's in the best interests of the cetacean's welfare. And the reason I find that so significant is that like the grade 8 provision in New Zealand, it's the only situation, literally the only one that I'm aware of, where the animal's welfare can be looked after without any counterbalance. In other words, there's no, there's no, usually when we look after animal welfare, as we've talked about on a previous show, what you end up doing is say, well, does it help the animal or does it help the human? And there's this balancing that takes place. And this legislation says, well, you can keep a cetacean in captivity, but only where it's in the best interests of the cetacean's welfare. And God, I would love to see that litigated someday. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very strong legislation. And I think that the reason that was put in there and worded the way that it was is because everyone was sort of on the same page that we wanted exemptions in there for rescue and rehabilitation of cetaceans. But nobody wanted to see that abused by the aquarium industry to say, oh, look, we've rescued the cetacean and now they have to stay in captivity for the rest of their lives and put them on display. There was a real concern that that would be misused to just continue confining cetaceans under the guise of rescue and rehab. So I think the way they've worded it is really clever. And as you point out, it's just very protective of the animals themselves and not of industries. Yeah, actually, we had a question on Twitter. I'm going to shout out to Emily Benoit. You see, that's my Montreal accent coming through, Camille. Did you catch that? Impressive. Emily Benoit. Anyway, uh, Emily said, uh, uh, here's the tweet, and it's full. Yay that S203 passed, but I'm wondering if there are concerns about the interpretation of the 3B exception for rehabilitation being too broad. And what the section says is, just so you, you can follow along with this, there's an exception to keep a citation where you have the custody of it that is kept in captivity for the purpose of providing it with assistance or care or to rehabilitate it following an injury 
or another state of distress. And and that to me is quite interesting uh, wording. And and I say that because I I, I see what Emily is getting at, but I I don't think that the section can be construed in a way that allows uh, um, that allows aquariums or whatever to keep cetaceans for that purpose because the the section 3b says very clearly it has to be for the purpose of providing it with assistance or to rehabilitate it and i think that would be looked at strictly and the reason i say that is because the next exception 3c is the one i read earlier that you have to be authorized to keep the cetacean in captivity in the best interests of the cetacean's welfare and i think the more likely interpretation is that the two sections would be read together because they make sense 3b would would allow for short-term rehabilitation without getting a license from the lieutenant governor and council. But once that passes through, once that sort of, you know, goes past the rehabilitation following an injury or another state of distress, well, the only way you could keep it is where it's in the cetacean's best interests. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right about that. And I also think that if any aquarium did try to keep a cetacean beyond the rehab period, I think it would be a really interesting uh, way for us to get into court potentially on this or for some legal action to be taken against the aquarium, and there would be an excellent challenge there. Yeah, I mean, that's the only, I mean, we could get into this all day because there's some little interesting parts about it. The only thing that troubles me even slightly, let me stress even slightly, is that this is still criminal legislation. Right. So it's not about uh, regulating the way in which uh, animals are taking place. What this does is it essentially creates a criminal offense for keeping whales. So essentially, you know, the, the only sanction available is the is the, the strict sanction of the criminal law. And I think it will be challenging for advocates if the government doesn't want to enforce the law to push and say, look, 3B is being abused here. It's ultimately the government's call as to whether or not to lay charges. Yeah, and of course, enforcement is always the elephant in the room with these statutes because good enforcement makes good law. Bad enforcement means the law might as well not exist. But uh, whatever the enforcement challenges are, at least we have something, and it'll be interesting to see how we can use it in the future. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, well, we don't have it yet, Camille. Still one more hurdle, correct? Yeah, so next step for this bill is that it goes to the House of Commons. It's being sponsored there by Green Party leader Elizabeth May. And the House of Commons has to repeat the process that went on in the Senate. So they vote on it, they read the bill, they study it at committee, and then hopefully they will pass it. So the challenge right now is that we are running out of time before the next election. We've got just about a year, actually. It was a year uh, just this week until the uh, twenty. 19 federal elections. So time is tight. It needs to move quickly, and we hope that will happen. I know a lot of members of parliament were really frustrated by the delay in the Senate because they are eager to get to work on this. And probably listeners remember that we held a press conference with Humane Society International and all four political parties, so Greens, NDP, Conservatives, and Liberals, uh, MPs from all those parties calling on it to pass. So I'm hopeful it's going to enjoy pretty broad political support in the House of Commons. But if you want to play a role in getting this passed, please contact your MP. Here, here. Here, here. What else is up, Camille? Okay, well, in much sadder news, um, and fortunately not surprising, there has been another barn fire. Barn fires start to uh, take off this time of year because uh, barns are increasingly being heated with elements that may cause fires. So 30,000 chicks died the other week in a barn fire in Nova Scotia, which I just find heartbreaking. And um, once again, it underscores the need for government and industry to get their act together on barn fires. 
and introduce new standards because what we have right now is essentially the industry policing itself and the government letting it do so. And uh, without updated fire codes, this is going to keep happening. Absolutely. Barn fires, uh, we've talked about on this show many times before. They continue to uh, be a major problem, obviously, in this, uh, in this, in this country. And uh, as long as we continue to ignore them, animal justice will continue to fight on behalf of these animals to get, these, uh, to get real laws passed that actually make a difference. And when we're talking about animals, the idea of talking about welfare is kind of nonsensical when you're talking about animals that are, that are burning up every time uh, a, f- a fire uh, lights up in a barn. So real concern. It's also just remarkable that to date there have been dozens, perhaps hundreds of barn fires in recent years, and not a single charge, to my knowledge, has been laid against any of the owners of those barns for violating any codes or for any animal cruelty or welfare offenses. So we will continue to stay on this story. Absolutely. Now let's move on to my home province of Alberta. Some also unpleasant news uh, involving a... Infamous, I think was the word I was looking for. Infamous dog breeder Tyler Marshall. Charges recently dropped uh, against Tyler Marshall uh, after he was charged with numerous counts uh, of distress and had... 200 animals seized by the SPCA in the belief that he was running a a form of puppy mill, although there were also 62 rabbits and eight cats. So I guess it was a puppy mill slash rabbit mill slash cat mill. Yeah, and this this story is really dismal. We first brought it to you, Peter, probably sometime in the spring. Uh, We discussed it on the podcast repeatedly in the past, but unfortunately those charges laid under the Provincial Animal Protection Act were withdrawn. 50 of the animals were returned to him. Uh, The rest of the animals were rehomed somewhere. And the charges against him uh, have now gone away. Instead, he's paid a $10,000 fine for contravening a local Vulcan town bylaw that only allows people to have up to three dogs. And obviously, he had more than that. So that was the basis of the fine. But uh, it's really heartbreaking that there is no such thing in this case as a prohibition order on future animal ownership, because that's what would have helped these animals. And future animals. I'm 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 almost encouraged by the fact that he's filing some sort of civil suit against the Alberta SPCA. So though I'll though I'll I'll bet quite a fair bit of money that that suit never goes forward. But uh, nonetheless, I'd I'd love to see the good thing about civil suits. God, I hope he does lay a civil suit, and God, I hope it goes up to the Queen's bench because then you get something called discovery. And God, I'd love to discover and seize uh, documents relating to his organization. I think that would be a treasure trove of information. Yeah, I bet it would be. And it would also be an interesting potential opportunity for us to intervene in a case. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, these types of cases are always troubling because I'm always, you know, it's hard for me to second guess the crown and why they chose to withdraw the charges because obviously I wasn't there and I don't know what the state of the evidence they had. For all I know, the evidence was improperly gathered. But uh, nonetheless, I'm always concerned when you have cases where, according to the SBCA, animals were in deplorable conditions and ultimately uh, the guy gets to walk away and continue on with his business. Yeah, it is always really, really troubling, but we'll be keeping an eye on this one. And if we have any news to bring you on the civil suit, we will. All right, where do we finish up? Oh, there has been lots of... Wait a minute, is this... Do I smell a political story here, Camille? Of course you do, because that's my hobby horse. Cue the sound effect. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm being trampled by Camille's hobby horse. (laughs) Sorry. Okay, well, 
Uh, British Columbia and Ontario both just had municipal elections, and there were some pretty good results, I think, for animals. Starting out uh, out in the West, so a bunch of Green Party members were elected to Vancouver City Council, so, so three out of ten are now Greens, and um, I happen to know a couple of them, and I know that they're good on animals. There are now three Greens on the Park Board as well. Um, Several of those had already voted to support a ban on keeping whales and dolphins at the Vancouver Aquarium, so good to to see them back there. And uh, the mayor of uh, Vancouver, the new mayor, Kennedy Stewart, he's been great on animal protection issues in the past, so that's really positive. And then we move on to Toronto, and a whole bunch of councillors got re-elected just this week, who I know to be good for animals. There's Josh Matlow, who's excellent, Kristen Wong-Tam, Shelley Carroll... Um, uh, several more than that. That's just a, a short list. But I'm feeling pretty optimistic about the potential for getting good municipal things done for animals, Peter. Fantastic. I mean, I'm particularly excited in Ottawa. It's good to know that your conversation with Matthew Fleury was was successful, you know, given that you, you know, broke your vow <laughs> I to make it happen. I know, I know. I have such guilt over it. But uh, I'm looking forward to meeting with him and talking about what we can do for animals locally. Fantastic. All right, let's move on. Amazingly, Camille, we've talked about a lot of big stories and we've we've kind of in, in journalistic parlance, we've buried the lead because I'd say despite S203 and a lot of other uh, 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 big things that have been happening, I'd say the biggest story is our main topic of the day, wouldn't you? I would say so. So finally, we're seeing some movement on the whole issue of bestiality. So right off the top, Peter, let's just tell our listeners that this is a section where viewer discretion is advisable. So if you've got some kids listening right now, you might want to usher them out of the room. It's a first for Paw and Order. (laughs) Keep the kids away. Turn off the podcast. Put your headphones on. Um, Wait a minute. Did you hear that sound, Camille? What was it? I I could have sworn as you when you said the word bestiality, I heard you know, thousands of podcast listeners click off. <laughs> oh, God, it could be. As they, it's, it's such a horrible thing to talk it's about. It's a little bit creepy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's- We're going to do our best to make bestiality fun. No, that didn't come out right. We're going to do our best to make the topic of bestiality as painless as possible. How's that? All right. I think I think we can handle that. We've, we've been doing this now for three years. So, so let's see how it goes. Yeah. Absolutely. And the truth of the matter is, it's a really uh, important topic. So let's dig into it. All right. So here's what just happened. After years of a giant loophole existing in our bestiality laws that let people get away with uh, bestiality without any criminal sanction, the government has finally introduced new legislation that would close the bestiality loophole. So we're going to get into all of this. But first, Peter, I think it's worth talking about how this came up in the first place, how it got on animal justice's radar, the legal work that we've done in court on this issue, and where things have gone since then. Yeah, I, I think that's a good idea, too. It's kind of ironic, Camille. It's very the, the way this came up is kind of funny because we were all set to do a topic. We had uh, next next the next episode of Paw and Order, episode 21, was all lined up to be the bestiality episode. So it just doesn't sound right. But it was going to be the bestiality episode because it would have overlapped exactly with three years to the day that we went to the Supreme Court and argued uh, about the legal status of bestiality. And then out of the blue, literally, uh, I mean, we had some inklings that this was coming, but it was pretty out of the blue that uh, we got the government announcement deciding to move forward. Yeah, so we rejigged our schedule, and as a result, you get to hear about this case today. 
So, so let's um, let's talk about DLW a little bit because it's really important to bring uh, that that case into perspective because obviously it sets the stage for for this one for this uh, legislation and DLW was a really interesting case and it was a big moment both for uh, you know the country and for animal justice. Um, DLW was a case out of British Columbia and essentially. It's a horrible case. Let's be very clear. Like, it's just an absolutely terrible case uh, where the offender, who cannot be named because uh, he committed the uh, offenses against his, uh, his young children, and uh, the offender was uh, a, a, a terrible human being who was involved in the sexual abuse of his kids. So it's kids or stepkids, Camille? I can't even remember. It was his two, so two stepdaughters, uh, very, very young, and they're yeah, still in their teenage years. Right. Yeah, so his stepdaughters, he was abusing his stepdaughters, and he was convicted with a range of offenses against his stepdaughters, and all of those were upheld on appeal. There was no issue about those. Um, he, he was clearly a sexual offender, no issue. One of the things that took place during the uh, offending was that he encouraged uh, the family dog to essentially uh, commit oral sex against uh, the daughters, the stepdaughters. And he did this by putting peanut butter on their private parts and encouraging the dog to lick it off, and he filmed all this. So at trial, in one of my favorite judgments, actually, by a wonderful British Columbia judge, now since retired, Mr. Uh, Mr. He's not Mr. DLW, well, Mr. DLW, for lack of a better word, um, was convicted of all the sexual offenses, but also convicted of bestiality. That's Sound right. about right so far? Yeah, that's right. The judge uh, was just scathing of this man and found him guilty of everything. Yeah, but what I loved most about the trial judge's decision, frankly, was that he said, uh, he, he essentially said, well, bestiality is also designed to protect animals. And the fact of the matter is that this kind of exploitation against animals is not what uh, Canadian society likes. So as a result, the judge found that the bestiality provision, uh, quite rightly, was designed to reflect society's condemnation of the use of vulnerable animals for sexual gratification. And I think that was a great decision. I certainly loved it. In fact, I spoke about it um, in a conference. It's ironic that all these things go together at one of the earlier versions of the animal law conference that we just went to this past weekend. And I said, this is a decision that signals that Judges are starting to get it, and it, it's a really positive thing. And it lasted for one whole year. So we were excited about that case, but of course it was appealed to the British Columbia Court of Appeal, and uh, we were surprised when the decision came out. So the only issue on this appeal was whether the offense of bestiality had actually been committed. And the accused argued that the offense has to include penetrating an animal or a human because that's what the provision requires and that his conduct, which was non-penetrative in nature, wasn't covered. So uh, one judge uh, agreed with the trial judge essentially and said that, well, this is an offense that's about protecting children and you can't protect children adequately from bestiality if you don't include all sexual conduct with animals. But the two-judge majority ruled quite differently, Peter, and uh, they found that based on the legislative history of this provision and the way bestiality came up in the criminal law, that penetration was an essential element of the offense, and so they acquitted him on the charge. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was it was upsetting on a number of levels. I mean, even the dissenting judge ignored everything to do with animals. The the dissenting judge essentially wrote about this saying, you know, it's got to be there to protect children. And um, there's good reasons to include all forms of sexual conduct. But that's really all it's about in this case. So what um, people should know is that in Canada, it's very important when you get a dissenting judgment in a criminal case, because uh, normally, I, I mean, I just went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And before going to the Supreme Court of Canada, I had to write a lengthy argument to the Supreme Court of Canada, what's called begging for leave. I had to ask the Supreme Court to agree to hear me. But the beauty is when a dissenting judge in a court of appeal uh, disagrees with a majority on a point of law, you get what's called an as-of-right appeal to the Supreme Court. So the court has to take your appeal. And in this case, the Crown decided it wants to appeal. And that was uh, very big news for us, especially once we read the Crown's arguments in this case. Yeah, that's right. And and we were pretty surprised to read the Crown's arguments because the Crown focused exclusively on... The idea that bestiality is about protecting children, and, you know, obviously it is, it's about protecting children, but it's mostly about protecting animals, in our view, or at least a a big part of it is about protecting animals. But the Crown was not engaging with those arguments whatsoever. They they didn't delve into the legislative history of uh, this section of our animal cruelty offenses. They were missing all kinds of really important arguments. And we just didn't think it was right to argue a case about animals and subjecting them to non-consensual sexual conduct without mentioning the fact that the animals have interests here that have to be protected. Yeah, and what's what was more offensive, Camille, you've probably forgotten it's been so long. I, I remember there was actually they went out of their way to disavow that the section had anything to do with animals. They made it clear that animal cruelty is a separate offense, and so long as pain and suffering is not caused on the animals, it has nothing to do with the bestiality offense. The animal the animal was effectively a toaster who was being used for sex. I mean, literally. It, it was... I, I read... I remember reading the Crown's factum, and I was just completely outraged. And then, of course, the defense files their factum, and their factum... Uh, sorry, factum is a written argument about the case, but the defense files their factum, and of course, well, they have no interest in the animals either. They're just trying to say how this is a morals offense and it's very limited to penetrative acts as the history of the statute shows. So we were sort of stuck in this position where this just seemed absolutely outrageous to us. And well, of course, there was only one thing we could try to do, which is called launch uh, an intervention, which uh, was no small feat in itself, Camille. No, it's a pretty big deal to get leave to intervene in a Supreme Court case, and it's especially a big deal for a group like Animal Justice, which three years ago had never successfully intervened in any case, ever. So it was by uh, by far not a sure thing that we would get into the case. Uh, we worked on the leave application, Peter. We filed it. We thought we were doing a pretty good job, but we didn't really know which way it would go. And uh, God, I can and, still but, remember. But luckily, luckily... Luckily, Camille, the, the, the parties in the case were very supportive of our participation, weren't they? <laughs> Sarcasm alert. No, yeah, they were the not parties happy were, we were very, there. very dismissive. They did not want animal justice involved, to put it mildly. No, no, they were, they were not interested in us being there. But uh, the judge who heard that or decided that leave application disagreed. And it was actually uh, Supreme Court Justice Moldaver who issued the order allowing us to intervene and file a factum and make oral arguments. Yeah, I still remember that was... uh... 
Jeez, we've passed that anniversary. That was right about, uh, it was in September, I believe. And it was, I got to be honest, uh, going to the Supreme Court was cool. But uh, getting the intervention, leave to intervene was one of the greatest things that I've ever been a part of. It was just a sensational moment. Because frankly, I knew, I knew what it meant. uh, I knew what it meant for animals. And uh, I I knew how important it was to get a chance to speak there. And and I remember as we got the uh, leave uh, intervention application, and it was granted. I, I, I still remember our conversation, how excited both of us were, but I also remember thinking about how it, how important it was going to be to go up there and for the first time in the Supreme Court's history, really say to them that we were there to speak on behalf of the animals. And that was just, uh, I, it was a very significant moment for me. It was. And uh, I think Shannon's actually pulled some audio from that, those arguments, Peter. So we're actually going to listen to a, a slight clip of what you said. The intervener animal justice is here today to speak on behalf of the animals who play a critical role in the bestiality offense. Whatever this court decides, we can't forget that it is impossible to commit bestiality without taking advantage of a vulnerable animal that cannot legally consent and is incapable of resisting because of the physical power imbalance between humans and animals. And that is one important reason why the broad approach to bestiality proposed by the Crown should be adopted by this court. Now, the appellant and the respondent have very different views about bestiality, but they seem to agree on one thing, that this offense has nothing to do with protecting animals from sexual exploitation and avoiding the risks of harm that come when an animal can be used freely for human sexual gratification. And I submit that in addition to being counterintuitive, given the nature of the offense at stake, this approach also conflicts with Parliament's intention. A critical question in this case, as you've just explored, surrounds what Parliament was trying to do in 1954-1955 when it separated bestiality from its historical attachment to buggery. One thing we know is that Parliament was thinking very carefully about animal protection at that time when it made this change. In fact, legislators were showing most concern for animals in Canadian history. Even to date, there has been no amendment more significant made to the Criminal Code than at that time. And the whole purpose of that was designed to extend the protection for animals from being the subject of unnecessary suffering. Now, these changes belie the suggestion that Parliament had no interest in the protection of animals when it was making these changes. And when you consider the important scope and the dramatic nature of the changes that were made, which are outlined in my factum, it's hard to imagine a clearer indication by Parliament that it was concerned about animals when it made this particular change. And I believe it's reasonable to suggest that this was also an animating concern for a broader vision of bestiality. Well, that brings back memories. I got to tell you, I watched that uh, from time to time. It's it was look, it was it was very exciting. I don't want to get too caught up in it because I really want to keep our focus on the bestiality uh, aspect of this and talk about the law. But but again, it's it's import it's 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 impossible to uh, overstate how important that was for animal justice and for animals generally. Um, I I there was a, another quote that got left off my argument, um, and it just did because of time and because of other issues and I decided not to say it at the last moment. But my plan originally was to end my submissions by saying um, when you are dealing with uh, vulnerable groups and new causes, uh, the most difficult part of any argument is getting in the door to make it. And we wanted to thank you for uh, allowing us to make our arguments today. And I I really did feel that way. Definitely. And I I still feel that way today. It was a huge deal that we were there. 
And it set the tone for all of the future intervention applications that we wanted to file in other cases. Once you can say to another court that you've been allowed in the door by the Supreme Court, that's a huge deal. And we've had um, you know, not much trouble getting in since then. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk briefly about what we actually argued. Um, um, to be clear, the arguments of the other two sides, we've already set them out. The defendant argued, like the BC Court of Appeal, that uh, bestiality had traditionally been rest uh, restricted to penetration. And since the word in the statute had not been changed, let me be clear, the bestiality offense, as it is stated now, is the is about the shortest offense in the code, Camille. It's essentially, uh, you're not permitted to commit the offense of bestiality. That's all it says. There is no definition of what bestiality is, and the accused argued, uh, ultimately successfully as it turns out, that the, the historical interpretation of bestiality was restricted to uh, uh, penetrative acts, while the Crown, in uh, an argument I was not all that fond of at the time or since, uh, argued that since it was so important to protect children, uh, you had to you had to uh, construe the bestiality offense uh, broadly, which, you know, I don't want to comment too much on, but I thought it was insane at the time. And I think it's insane since because the whole thing about children, there is essentially a separate offense of committing bestiality or inciting children to commit bestiality. So there are some secondary offenses. But as the court, Supreme Court ultimately pointed out, and I thought from day one, the core offense of bestiality has nothing to do with children. It's just it's it's not even in there. It's an offense to commit bestiality in your own home, uh, in privacy. It doesn't matter if children are present or not. So the idea that children were the object of the provision just made no sense to me. No, I agree. I agree. Uh, so, Peter, we, uh, we intervened. We made our arguments. We had a big celebration after about how exciting it was. And then we waited for six months. <laughs> Yeah, and it didn't. Uh, <laughs> that's when the celebrating stopped. Although, you know, I was still pretty content uh, with the ruling, which was released on June 9th, 2016. Um, suffice to say that we lost uh, by a six to one margin. The Supreme Court took a position that just let me say, Camille, while I disagreed with the position and still do, it was not like completely indefensible, nor was it, nor was it uh, surprising. The, the, the majority opinion was simply that we need to protect people's interests, and uh, statutes have to mean what we believe that they mean. And the most likely meaning of this from day one has been that penetration is required. So if Parliament wants to change that, it can. But we're not going to do it, and we shouldn't do it. We're the Supreme Court. I mean, a defensible position. Defensible for sure and definitely understandable. But the cool thing, there were two really cool things. The first thing is that the majority still recognized that protecting animals is a fundamental societal value. And they actually cited animal justice's submissions repeatedly in their decisions. So that, that was amazing. That was cool. That was cool. Interveners do not often or always get uh, a shout out in a majority Supreme Court decision, and we, and we did, so I, I thought that was incredible. And of course, the second really cool thing is that Justice Rosalia Bella dissented, and she adopted basically wholesale our submissions and agreed with us completely that if you look at the history of the criminal code, everything done to the animal cruelty provisions, uh, it's all designed to be more protective of animals, not less, and that you have to interpret bestiality in light of this parliamentary intent. And that, to me, was a powerful argument. I was disappointed it didn't get more traction with the majority. Um, I, I, I have no issue with the majority's position that um, um, definitions created by parliament should be accorded 
uh, should be should be construed in light of what Parliament most likely meant when it enacted them. Where I was disappointed with the majority was that they didn't recognize the fact that Parliament changed the definition of bestiality at exactly the same time as it modernized cannibals' animal cruelty provisions and did so in a way that provided a great deal more protection. It's it's funny, Camille. I, I have to admit, I don't know how I said that with a straight face because I think I said it as more protection than had ever been granted before because it was it was kind of weird to be in a position of sort of saying, well, these are like really showed how much parliament cared about animals when parliament doesn't care about animals. But anyway, I digress. Sometimes as a lawyer, you have to argue it of both sides of your mouth, I guess. Well, thanks, Camille. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was doing. Yeah. Anyway, it was uh, it was great to read. We convinced at least one judge of the court who who agreed with us, and of course said some wonderful things about the need to protect animals from harm. So uh, it was uh, it was really interesting. By the way, Camille, just as an aside, I want to get onto the bill. But um, as an aside, the DLW case came up in the Supreme Court case that I was just on, and it was like it was really it was really interesting. I have to tell you because of course Justice Abella was sitting on the panel that I was just arguing on and Justice Abella knows damn well that I was arguing <laughs> DLW as well. Yeah. So, so when the the issue that came up in this case is not really pertinent but it was sort of a question of whether or not the court should expand an interpretation and I was like I start going but in DLW you said not to do that you said it should be construed narrowly and let parliament make changes that it wants to make and just as Bella had the biggest smile on her face it was just wonderful oh wow that's amazing that's amazing <laughs> well anyway luckily Parliament, luckily, of course, Camille, I mean, the, the, the Supreme Court said, Parliament, if you want to fix this, go right ahead. And of course, Parliament got right on it, Camille. I mean, let's talk. Let's talk about what happened next. Oh, yeah. So um, basically nothing happened for a very, very long time. We thought they would do something right away because this is literally the easiest fix you could possibly imagine. Um, it's like a dozen words to add to the criminal code to solve this problem. You just need to define bestiality in a way that includes all sexual contact with animals. And there was already a private member's bill in Parliament, C-246, by Liberal MP Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, that included this measure as part of a broader package of reforms, too. So they could have introduced it immediately. It didn't require study. It's not a complicated matter. They're basically just putting the law back to where we all thought it was before the Supreme Court case. Yep, absolutely. But, uh, and, and uh, sorry, so what happened next, Camille? I'm, my, my history is a little shaky. People mobilized. People asked the government to act. There was lots of public discussion. There were some news stories about this. And the government didn't do anything for uh, quite some time. It was uh, later that year they, they killed Bill C-246 that would have fixed the problem. And nothing happened. Finally, Bill, Bill C-246 literally had the exact same provision they just enacted. Is that right? That's right. That's right. The yeah. problem, the problem could have been solved much sooner, but after they killed but that legislation, they, they didn't want to do it because, as Bill Blair told us, and we revisited on last week's episode, they wanted to do a comprehensive criminal law reform, which we are still waiting for. By the way, still waiting, still waiting. 
After they continued to do nothing, we worked with Conservative MP Michelle Rempel to put forward a private member's bill exclusively on this issue, and it used, again, the exact same definition. So that happened December 2017. The government didn't respond in any way or take any action. Um, We heard rumors that they were potentially working on something and that maybe something would come down. And then finally, on um, October 18th, I think it was, they introduced a bill. So the bill now includes that new definition of bestiality, so it closes that disturbing loophole. And they also threw some stuff in there, closing a few loopholes around animal fighting, so making it an offense to train animals or breed animals or keep an arena or, or things like that. Congratulations. So before Yeah, I, two and a half years later. Yeah, before I, you know, I, 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 I feel like I have to do it, Camille. So I'm going to say... On the most serious note I can muster, congratulations. Like, better late than never. I'm glad it's coming in. Uh, It was the right thing to do. And I'm pleased uh, anytime government uh, puts in a sensible bill, I don't want to just start slamming them, although we're about to start slamming them. But but I don't want to do that. I do want to start off by saying very with very degree of seriousness that I can muster. Um, it's it's good that they did this. Uh, it, it's better than certainly leaving it another six months, one year, etc. Yeah, yeah, we finally got an action and I'm I'm happy about it. Mostly. Great, but of course we're not happy for long, Camille. Now it's time to start bitching. I mean, there there are some serious problems with this bill. Yeah, we're never satisfied. I mean, I'll start with a really uh, a really detailed problem about what they have done. So they are trying to close the bestiality loophole, but they've opened up sort of a weird new loophole. Uh Instead of making bestiality an offense where a judge can impose a ban on animal ownership for somebody who's convicted of that offense, they haven't closed that, um, that, that loophole. They, so they haven't done anything about that. So as it stands, somebody could be convicted of bestiality, and there's no way for a judge to impose a ban on animal ownership, unlike all the other provisions for animal cruelty in the criminal code. And, and that's a big deal. And that's frankly one of the things that uh, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith's bill would have done. It would have centralized all the issues involving animals in one place in the code. And just to be clear, the reason this doesn't work is because right now bestiality is treated as a sexual offense and therefore it's dealt with in the sexual offending part of the code. I, I believe, Camille, it's kind of, you know, I, well, not ironic because I think it's the right thing to do that a person who commits bestiality will get a sexual offender status uh, and a designation as a sexual offender, but they will not be designated as an animal abuser. And, and, and like you, I think that's hugely problematic. There has to be a way uh, uh, to, to link the animal cruelty prohibitions of the act um, um, to to this uh, section of a code. Absolutely, because the last thing we want is people like this getting their hands on other animals in the future. So we'll be fighting when this bill gets to the committee stage to include some measure in there to address that loophole. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, Peter, is far more fundamental and far bigger. And the problem number two is that they just haven't done what they promised to do on animal cruelty overall. So they're billing this as animal cruelty measures, reforming those provisions. But all they're doing is bestiality and animal fighting. All of the other very important measures that were in Bill C-246 that were killed, so measures about negligence, measures about brutally and viciously killing animals, uh, moving the animals under the property section of the criminal code, those aren't being addressed at this time, and we think that something should have been done. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of stuff drives me crazy because, uh, once again, you're right that the government, uh, um, um, you know, if you look at you look at the government's own news release, can I do you mind if I read from that, Camille? Go for it. 
but did you did you eat recently, Camille? Just be careful, you know. Just you might you might you might lose what's going on. <laughs> you might lose parts of your. I'd say lunch, but it's a little early for that. Uh-oh. So I mean, it's just it just it just drives me crazy. Because essentially, it's like the first line is Canadians deserve and expect a society where our laws fully protect children and other vulnerable individuals from all forms of abuse and violence. I'm like, well, other vulnerable individuals, I'm assuming that means animals, because like I love the wording to begin with. Like, I'm assuming it means animals. Because, oh, no, sorry, it's to strengthen provisions of for children, other vulnerable individuals, and animals. Okay, sorry. So in the second sentence, they've clarified what's going on. So we're going to have to do this. But, but why don't you actually do that? Like, why don't you actually uh, uh, impose measures that are going to strengthen our existing animal cruelty offenses? We know there are weaknesses. You've had two and a half years apparently doing nothing. I, I, like, what were you doing? You looked at Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, you said you were going to review it within a complete package, and you come back with the simplest and most easiest parts of the bill, but you will pat yourself on the back. Uh, sorry, can I just read? Here's the Honorable Jody Wilson-Raybeau. She says, Canadians have been asking for changes to our animal cruelty laws, and today our government is responding. I'm sorry, Camille, just, I've got to turn away. I think I'm, I'm losing my lunch. Yeah, and so they say it's a first step, but then they give no timeline on when the next steps are going to come, and they haven't started any consultations on more substantive reforms like they promised, so we're all kind of left in the dark here wondering what's up. Yeah, and again, there's always this hint of future legislation on some unidentified timeline. Um, You know, they do say it's an important first step in updating the criminal code. Great. Okay, well, what's the next step? What are we doing later? Like, it's really, it's just frustrating dealing with the government. I I gave them some kudos a few minutes ago because I do believe that, you know, they've, they've done something great, better than doing nothing. But at the end of the day, you know, there there are many important changes we need to make to our criminal code involving animal cruelty, and it's it's very worrisome that they, they just, you know, refuse to do that. And frankly, uh, even more worrisome that they do so only after consultation with groups that seem to have a veto power over these changes. Right. And that's the that's the line in this news release that gives us a hint as to why nothing is happening. So they say that nothing in this bill will affect legitimate uses of animals. And news coverage of the new bill has revealed that the government consulted extensively with farming groups. So they wanted to get buy-in from all these farming organizations so that they would be on board with this and not oppose bestiality legislation before they brought it forward. And I find this dynamic, Peter, to be really troubling because what it does is it sets up a situation where these groups feel like they're entitled to a veto over animal cruelty legislation. And like nothing can proceed unless they've been consulted and they agree to it, which I don't think is the right path forward for animals. I don't think that a law about bestiality, which has nothing to do with their industries, should be subject to their approval. I don't think that we should be asking them to uh, go ahead with this. And I think if they want to oppose laws about bestiality, we should duke that out with them in the media and in the public. Absolutely. I'd like to see these things. I, it, it does concern me. There's no question that the the 
you know, in this case, I don't want to say the affected industries because I don't think that's right. I don't think bestiality has anything to do with uh, with farming operations or any type of breeding animals. We could debate whether breeding animals is a good idea on other grounds, but I, I'm not going to compare it to bestiality because I, I just don't think it is. I don't think that's what bestiality is designed to do. And the reason is, of course, the way it's worded makes that clear. Bestiality means any contact for a sexual purpose. There are lots of purposes to breeding and impregnating animals in lots of ways that I find very troubling, but they're not for sexual purpose. No, I think they're more fairly characterized as an economic purpose, which again, very troubling, but not really what this legislation is designed to address. But I'm surprised I haven't heard from uh, from our, well, maybe because he's on, he's on his retirement, you know, party tour. But I would have thought that Robert Sopak would express concerns that families, you know, wouldn't be fed, Camille. No, no, no. Our our biggest uh, retractor has been has been quiet. He's been very quiet, probably because this bill is not anything that he has to worry about. But in any event, look, uh, it's it's worrisome, uh, and it's something we've got to monitor. And uh, just like this bill, which is going to go to committee, I, I hope. Uh, any clue when that's going to take place, Camille? What's the normal timeline for committee of these types of things? It varies, but I hope it will go be to the committee before the end of the year. Uh, I mean, there's there's not much time to get this bill passed before the next election. It does need to go to the Justice Committee. It needs to be voted on. It needs to be agreed to by the House of Commons. And then it needs to repeat that process in the Senate. So I hope it can get moving pretty quickly if we're going to get it passed. Well, I hope to get a chance to come and speak out on this bill because I would very much like to do so. Yeah, no, we'll definitely be angling for that. All right. Well, Peter, that's our discussion of um, sexual abuse of animals. Hope you all found that somewhat interesting and weren't too grossed out by it. Uh, I'm not grossed out by it anymore after three years of talking about it, but it took a while to get there. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's definitely, it's definitely one I don't want to revisit on a daily basis, but uh, the issues are important. They're interesting and they, they really, you know, just the way this bill has developed says something about the way animals are treated in this country. Definitely. Heroes and Zeros. All right, now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show. Yes, it's time for Heroes and Zeros. And we've got some good ones here, Camille. I'm very excited. The uh, the Hero and the Zero are some good ones and very appropriate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you do the work here, Camille, since you have helped do so much of this work. Why don't you tell us about today's Hero? Well, today's two heroes are both amazing members of parliament who have been fighting on this bestiality issue since day one. So Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, he proposed Bill C-246 to address it. He's been advocating within his own caucus to get the liberals to move on this, and we really appreciate all of his work. Michelle Rempel, of course, mentioned her earlier. She introduced a private member's bill to close the bestiality loophole as well. And she's continued to push that issue. She put up a, a petition, actually, that I that I started and she sponsored that got thousands of signatures on it. And she's asked questions of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in the House of Commons. And I have no doubt that her efforts, that Nathaniel's efforts, have both led to finally seeing this bill um, see the light of day and hopefully will lead to it being passed into law. 
So heroes, well-deserved. I, I just want to add that uh, we, we, we poke fun at politicians. In fact, I, I think we just poked fun at some politicians just a few minutes ago. And, and sometimes it, it is easy to do so because politicians move around on various issues. It, it, it has been really wonderful to see these two uh, from very different parties and, and really recognizing that this is just an outrageous problem that needs to be solved with legislation. And it's just it's, it's really been fantastic to have two such strong advocates uh, pushing this issue. And, and really, I think they were instrumental in, in getting this bill uh, passed and, and uh, just at least brought forward. And I, I think it's uh, I think they're very deserving heroes uh, for this episode. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And Peter, for every hero, there's a zero. Oh, there's a zero. <laughs> there's a huge zero. Why don't you fill us in on why the Australian Department of Agriculture is this episode's zero? Speaking of, of politicians, I suppose these are bureaucrats rather than politicians. But speaking of bureaucrats disappointing us, this this is one that's really, really upsetting. And it's, it's part of a long-running issue that we've been following on this podcast involving uh, live sheep export uh, in Australia. A huge problem there. Uh, an issue that has received unbelievable media attention. And and an issue that has been batted around like a political football as uh, one horror story after another um, 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 reaches out. And, and this particular zero is, is given for a very specific purpose. And what happened in Australia very recently, we talked a couple of episodes back, I believe, Camille, about Emmanuel Exports, um, an absolute horror show of a company that's been involved in many of the abuses of animals on, 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 on the oceans and, in fact, was the, was the exporter responsible responsible for the, the horrible uh, um, exports that wound up in a, a big news story and was ultimately pr promoted so much outrage in Australia. You remember that name, Emmanuel Exports? Oh, I sure do. The, the images from that investigation, uh, they're just terrible and, and just terrible and heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. And and what happened was Emmanuel Exports, you know, in a, in a decision that was really, really um, 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 trumpeted by Australian media and obviously Australian animal advocates, Emmanuel Export, after all this happened, finally had their license canceled. You know, they just had too many violations, right? So that's the good news. And we were excited about it a couple of weeks ago. But what's happened yeah. since is, yeah, what's happened since is that it's just, I, I hardly know where to start with the story. But there is another company called the Rural Export Trading Western Australia. And um, as it turns out, this is a company that had its export license canceled in 2004, following 25 high mortality voyages within a two-year period. So what happened when they had their license canceled in 2004, Emmanuel Exports came in and started doing live export. And as it turns out, Hmm, Camille, they seem to share the same boards of directors, some of the same operating uh, people like there, there's just uh, let's just say there's a, a large, uh, a large, you know, um, um, similarity between the two companies. And what happens is Rhett was licensed. That's the name of the, the company, the Rural Export Trading Western Australia was canceled in 2004. So when Emmanuel exports went down. Retwa decides to reapply for its license. And guess what? It was granted by the Department of Agriculture. Oh. So essentially, for all intents and purposes, 
let's just say the way the RSPCA puts it, that another company closely affiliated with Emanuel Exports is now allowed to have their export license approved and start trading in the same way. And as my good friend, Dr. Jid Goodfellow, who's with the RSPCA Australia, I'll let him say it since he knows more about it. It absolutely beggars belief how the department could think it could possibly meet its regulatory obligations in granting this license. He goes through the history just like I have and then concludes, and I think it's right, that this decision makes an, an absolute mockery of our already troubled live export regulation. And by the way, Camille, I don't want to like go on too long about this, but this is like almost a hobby horse of mine. <coughs> Uh-oh. Because what, what this we've seen this before. Right in Canada, this idea of company switching, of one person getting punished, so they switch their license to a secondary person. I've seen farmers who get banned from prohibiting animals. Suddenly the farm passes over to their wife. You know, it's just, this is not the first time. And the fact that the Department of Agriculture Australia would go along with this is deeply, deeply troubling and very well deserving of a big fat zero. Well, amen to that. Very disturbing stuff here. Uh, God, I don't even know what to say because that's just like, that's seriously terrible and, and just completely an abdication of their duties, I would say, to vulnerable animals who don't deserve that type of suffering. Absolutely. So uh, that's our zero for this episode, a well-deserving one. And uh, we could, we, we, I, I have a funny feeling we will be hearing more about live sheep exports. It's been kind of a theme of our first year, considering it's all the way over in Australia. It's come up quite a bit on this show. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge issue. And I think the images are just shocking from those uh, those ships and those investigations. So we'll, we'll keep staying on top of it and let you know where this case goes next. All right, that brings our episode of uh, Paw and Order to a close. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. We had a lot of fun doing it. We finally got to get bestiality out of our system, Camille. Ooh, hopefully we won't have to talk about that anytime again soon. I'm sure we will, though. I hope so. All right, look forward to seeing you next time on another episode of Paw and Order. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.